It's a remarkable series of events. It's an impressive demonstration of power over defilements, disease, and even demons. But what's it all about? Why does Jesus perform these great miracles? How do they fit into his wider program? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, as we begin a new series today entitled Kingdoms Colliding, we're beginning to look at the book of Matthew chapter 8, a message called The Arrival of the Kingdom. And, and in Matthew 8, we see Jesus performing miracles. In numerous gospels, we read about numerous miracles. And where do those miracles fit into what Jesus is doing during his time on earth? Well, the miracles are very, very impressive, and the stories of the miracles are very, very interesting to read, and the events are interesting to picture. But we always need to be asking the question you're asking, Steve, what is it that Jesus is showing us and teaching us? And I think we want to think along two tracks with that. We want to think about his identity and his mission. Mm. And those come together when we think about Jesus as the promised Savior, the Messiah that God has sent into the world. And the miracles are always pointing us to his identity as Savior and his saving work at the cross of Calvary. What a great truth for us to be thinking about as we begin this series. If you can, grab a Bible and join us in Matthew chapter 8 as we begin The Arrival of the Kingdom. Here is Jonathan. When Jesus opens up his public ministry in Matthew's Gospel at chapter 4 and verse 17, we're told that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The scriptures speak of the devil, of God's archenemy, Satan, as having been given a, a limited kind of dominion over the kingdoms of this world for a time. And of course, as we look around, we see what he's been up to in his kingdom, how he's been using that dominion. We see the mess that Satan has been making of God's world. But when Jesus arrives on the scene 2,000 years ago, he announces the coming of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. Now, clearly, in his first coming to earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't bring in the full reality of the kingdom of God, the full reality that is yet to come, that is a hope yet to come. But Jesus came as God's appointed king into the world. He came as the Messiah, and he announced the fact that God was reasserting his right to be ruler of the earth. God was at work making things right, and God fully intended to cast out the devil and undo his dark work. And as Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he called men and women, boys and girls, to join the kingdom of God, to follow him as Lord. Now, in these early chapters of Matthew's gospel, which we spent time in over recent months, Jesus has been teaching us about the nature of the kingdom, the nature of life in the kingdom for those who would follow him. But now in chapter 8 and following, there's a bit of a shift in focus, and he's going to illustrate for us the power of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and he's going to give us glimpses into his coming victory and the transformation he will bring about when the fullness of his kingdom comes. But as that happens, here's what we see. We see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, clashing with the kingdoms of this world. 
Now, that's just a little bit by way of background and explanation. And, and now to the text. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. And it's worth just remembering where we are and what has taken place. Israel's been without a prophet for 400 years. The promises of God in the Old Testament Scriptures and the prophecies of the Old Testament have been ringing in their ears, promises of a kingdom restored, promises of salvation realized, but the reality on the ground has been largely very discouraging. It's been fairly grim. Israel has never really recovered from the Babylonian exile, which ended in the 6th century BC. They've been under the thumb of one foreign power or another for a very long time. And in New Testament times, of course, they're living under the very large and the very powerful thumb of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen. The people of Israel have been looking to God to act, looking to Him to intervene, and in particular, looking to Him to send His promised King, the Messiah, to rescue them. It's been a long wait, a long time of quiet. But in these early chapters of Matthew's gospel, something remarkable has happened, something that has stirred interest and aroused curiosity. A new teacher has arrived on the scene. He's taught with freshness and with clarity and with authority. People are listening. There's something compelling about this man. Jesus has just been on the mountain in chapter 7, wrapping up the great Sermon on the Mount, and there has been this noticeable stirring, verse 28 of the previous chapter, when Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, because He taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. This teacher is different. He's fresh. He's compelling. He brings an authority that the people have never seen before. Could this be a sign that the Lord is doing something, that the Lord has sent someone, someone to help, someone to lead, someone to intervene, even someone to save? Having now shown His great authority through His teaching ministry on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to do something else now, something even more arresting, even more striking. He begins to show His authority through action, through performing a series of very impressive miracles. Now, in a few minutes, I want us to consider a couple of very important questions that we will need to reckon with in this passage. I want to ask why it is that Jesus does this, why He performs these miracles, and I want to ask how it is that we are meant to respond, how you and I are meant to respond to Jesus, the great worker of these great miracles. We're going to come back to those questions in a few minutes, but I thought I'd mention them now so that you can have them turning over in your mind as we look together at the story. But now to the story, now to the narrative. Picture the scene with me. Jesus preaches the most famous sermon in the history of preaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He finishes up His sermon. He comes down from the mountain, and now He has a large crowd of people following Him, hanging on His every word. His teaching, it's impressed them. And of course, this kind of thing does happen from time to time. It happens even today. Someone comes on the scene with something fresh, something compelling to say, and he or she gains a following, gains a crowd. I think of that professor in Toronto, Jordan Peterson, who's come on the scene with something fresh to say. And large crowds, particularly, I gather, crowds of young men, large crowds are following, are listening, are watching, hanging on his every word. 
But among the crowds were some people, among the crowds was at least one man, who saw in Jesus not only an interesting teacher, a compelling speaker, but something more. Verse 2, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. To be diagnosed with leprosy in ancient Israel was a fate almost worse than death itself. The skin disease or perhaps collection of diseases called leprosy, they weren't well understood, they weren't treatable, and they often led to significant disability and, and maiming. But worse than the disease itself was the sort of social and spiritual effect. Lepers were considered unclean on every level physically unclean and contagious, dangerously so, and ceremonially unclean and unfit for participation in the spiritual life of the community. They were excluded from the community of faith, sent to live outside in, uh, of the towns and villages in settlements of their own leper colonies, unable to work or provide for themselves or play any meaningful part in the society around them, and, and they faced destitution. So the man who approaches Jesus in verse 2 is, in every respect that matters, a hopeless man. But he comes with a conviction. He comes with a conviction based on whatever he's heard or seen of Jesus, the conviction that Jesus can do for him what no one else could do. He could heal him. He could make him clean. Now, in those days in Israelite society, one thing that no one ever did for lepers, one thing that no one ever did to lepers was to touch them. That was a recipe for absolute disaster. It was a complete no-no. If you touched a leper, you risked getting their dread disease. But moreover, if you touch them, you automatically receive their uncleanness in ceremonial terms, in spiritual terms. And then you yourself are excluded from the spiritual life of the community for a period of time for a time of cleansing. No one touched lepers. It simply wasn't done. No one, that is, except Jesus. And without a moment's hesitation, without missing a beat, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. What wonderful words. I expect that man had never heard such soul-refreshing heart-lifting, such thrilling words, I am willing, be clean. And Matthew tells us that immediately this sick man, this defiled man, this hopeless man, he was healed. He was literally cleansed of his leprosy. If others like this leper suspected that this teacher was more than a teacher, that his authority went beyond speech into action, this event amply confirms it, but it's only the start. Next comes the centurion, a Roman army man, clearly a non-Jew. He comes to Jesus asking for help because his servant is ill at home, paralyzed in terrible pain. Jesus immediately offers to come, but the man's response is quite surprising. I'm not worthy to have you come into my home, but Jesus, just say the word, and I know my servant's going to be healed. I know that'll be enough. For verse 9, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I get authority structures, Jesus. I operate in a world of command and of obedience. I have seen your officers over me. I have soldiers under me. I know what it is for orders to be given and orders to be obeyed. And I know full well I can see it. You wield 
authority, supernatural authority, even divine authority. I know that if you give the word, Jesus, the very creation will fall into line and will obey. Jesus was astonished, we're told, at this Gentile's faith, and he said to him to go home, that his request was granted. And we read verse 13, that his servant was healed at that very hour. It's always very impressive when someone in a position of power and influence can just pick up the phone and make a problem go away, make an application sail through, make a waiting list shorter, make a journey faster, whatever it is. That kind of thing rarely happens for me. I don't have the right friends in the right places. Maybe it happens for you all the time. But I do remember something like this happening for my sister on one occasion. Some years ago, I remember she had some difficulty, a bit of difficulty with one of the airlines. Something got damaged, I think, in transit. She wasn't getting anywhere with customer service with a major airline. You can't imagine that, can you? Anyway, but it just happened that a friend at that time in the finance world held a very significant stake in this airline through his company. In fact, I think they were the largest shareholder at that time. And this friend heard about my sister's ordeal, and he decided that he'd make a quick call to the CEO, who he kind of had on speed dial at that time. And I'm, I'll tell you, it was amazing how quickly that problem went away. It just vanished right away. Suddenly, customer service, who were normally a bit surly, they couldn't do more to help. Suddenly, they were positively just falling over themselves to be polite and useful. Well, nice when that kind of thing happens. Impressive when it happens. Amazing what a phone call can do from the right person. But you know, here Jesus doesn't even need to pick up a phone. He doesn't have to send a message or call for a helper. He simply declares that the problem is solved. And the simple declaration from the mouth of Jesus, it is more than powerful enough for the creation itself to fall into line. No hesitation, no waiting period, no complication, no delay. The servant is healed at that very hour. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths in a message called The Arrival of the Kingdom. It's part of a larger series called Kingdoms Colliding as we take a look at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to get back to this message in just a moment. Hope you'll stay with us. I want to let you know that Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. That means we depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. So if you're benefiting from listening, I want to ask you to consider a gift today. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org. And as you give a gift, we want to say thank you by sending you a book from C.H. Spurgeon. It's called Checkbook on the Bank of Faith. And there's a short reading for each day. These are writings that uh, Spurgeon penned encouraging believers to enter into the full provision that their relationship with Jesus entitles them to. Again, we'd love to send you this book, Checkbook on the Bank of Faith, for your gift of any amount. You can give your gift online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-998-7884. That's 833-99-TRUTH. Or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, if you're just joining us, we're in the book of Matthew chapter 8 as we continue the arrival of the kingdom. Here is Jonathan. In case we're not getting the point here that Jesus is powerful to heal, 
we find him now in the home of one of his helpers. Peter's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. As a little side note, I was noticing that normally in the Gospels, when there is a healing, someone comes to Jesus with a sense of urgency, appealing for help, either for themselves or, or for the sick person. Interestingly, we see no record here that Peter pursued any kind of help for his mother-in-law. <laughs> no record that he made any kind of appeal to Jesus. <laughs> I'm sure Peter cared deeply for his mother-in-law and longed for her to be restored to full health and vigor without any delay. Anyway, just an observation. In any case, whether invited or not, Jesus does come. And now it's just a touch, verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up. Jesus has cleansed the defiled, healed the diseased, and now in verse 16, he turns to something new. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. Within Jewish practice and understanding, there could hardly have been anything more unclean, more unsettling, anything darker than demon possession. Those who suffered in that way, and many did, we see them in the Gospels, those who suffered in that way were not only oppressed by the demon itself, but they were sent to the margins of society and excluded from the religious life of the community. We can only imagine how long some of these folks may have suffered, for how long they had felt the oppression of these dark forces in their lives, how long they had been isolated from the community and excluded. Clearly, no one in the community had been able to help them. These evil spirits, they were too strong for others to contend with and deal with. But now comes Jesus, and what does he do? He drives out the spirits with a word. The very forces of hell are powerless before him. It's a remarkable series of events. It's an impressive demonstration of power over defilements, disease, and even demons. But what's it all about? Why does Jesus perform these great miracles? How do they fit into his wider program? That's the first question that we need to tackle here. And I wonder if it's something that you've ever thought about particularly before. I wonder if you've grappled with this as you've read through the Gospels' accounts for yourself. Why does Jesus spend so much of his time performing miracles like these? Now, in starting to answer that question, I want to make a suggestion that could seem a little bit controversial, but bear with me. I want to suggest that Jesus didn't perform these miracles because he was trying to heal as many people as possible during his earthly ministry. He didn't perform these miracles because his main mission on earth 2,000 years ago was to heal as much sickness and disease and demon possession as he possibly could to treat as many patients as he could on the spot. We might tend to think that that's what he was up to, but I don't think he was. Obviously, Jesus cared deeply about people who were oppressed by these things, Obviously, he had a deep and heartfelt compassion for them. Obviously, he wanted them well. Clearly, he wanted to impact and even transform their lives. Clearly, Jesus had compassion for these people, but I don't think that the miracles themselves, these individual miracles and their accomplishment, I don't think that is the main thing. 
I don't think it's the main thing, not least because that aspect of Jesus' work was actually quite limited. I mean, he healed a reasonable number of people in the Gospels. There are probably dozens of healing stories recorded in these narratives. But let's be honest, it is just a drop in the bucket. It's not that significant. There were millions and millions of sick people in Jesus' world in that day. There were probably tens of thousands of lepers, thousands and thousands of people suffering demon possession, but only really a handful healed by the Lord Jesus. If Jesus, the Almighty Son of God, came into the world simply with the aim of healing as many individual sick people as possible during those few years of active ministry, well, if that was his aim, we might have to conclude that his mission was actually a bit of a flop, a bit disappointing. But I think that if we read the New Testament carefully, we discover that the miracles were there, not primarily for their own sake, but to make and to prove a much bigger point. They're teaching us something. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2 and verse 22, the apostle Peter says this to the people of Judah. Acts 2 and 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him. Now, that is a very significant statement, and it's paralleled by a similar statement at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus was accredited by God to you through the miracles, the wonders, the signs. The miracles were Jesus' stamp of authenticity. They were his credentials. They were telling you something very significant about this man. We recently said goodbye to a member of our congregation who served as a diplomat for a foreign country. As is normal in that line of work from time to time, he was assigned a new post as an ambassador and was called upon to go elsewhere. But he told me that before taking up his new post, he would need to make a return trip to his home country and to have an audience with his president. And his president would hand him his credentials. This diplomat would then take these credentials with him to the head of state in the new country where he was going to serve, and he would present those. He needed to carry his credentials from the president to the head of state if he was going to be accepted and if he could serve. Now, the miracles of Jesus are his credentials from God the Father. They are proof of his identity and his mission, his authority and his office. But what precisely do these miracles prove about Jesus? What do they tell us about him? What do they demonstrate? And that is where we have to pause today's message. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called The Arrival of the Kingdom. A look at Matthew chapter 8, the first 17 verses. And it's the first in our series called Kingdoms Colliding. If you ever miss one of the broadcasts in our series, you can always come to our website and actually listen to each and every broadcast there. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported ministry. We depend on your generosity to keep this program on the station, but as you give a gift of any amount, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's written by C.H. Spurgeon, 
And Jonathan, what did you love about this book? Well, we're so delighted to be able to make this resource available this month. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most famous preachers, actually, in the church's history, I think. He was a a wonderful pastor and Bible teacher in Victorian London, and he led a very significant ministry there. And Spurgeon had a genius for taking simple truths through God's Word and applying them to the hearts of believers. And these daily readings, I believe, will nourish your heart and soul, whether you're new to reading the Bible or whether that is a long-established pattern for you. I think you'll find this of great benefit and encouragement. The book is called Checkbook at the Bank of Faith. We'd love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount. All you have to do is come to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or you can give us a call at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.